We have a very interesting program for these Wednesday evenings, and we hope that it will prove useful in several ways, not only in the interpretation of dreams, but also as a means of explaining certain waking phenomena, which perhaps is more frequent to us than the dream itself. To begin with, we have a long history of the study of dream symbolism. From the very dawn of our record of human achievement, dreams have been recorded. And among ancient and primitive societies, one of the duties of the priest or the spiritual leader of the people was the interpretation of dreams. From what we can gain in general, it would seem that in, the, in these culture groups, the dream was regarded as a genuine psychic phenomenon and was assumed to have meaning. Meaning for these people was a rather literal thing. It had to do with daily occupation and daily problems. It had certain prophetic dimensions. And it was also held to be a link between the world of the living and the invisible universe which surrounds man. The Greeks started out with very much this point of view. Democritus, whose reputation has been closely associated with his discoveries in the field of atomism, held that the dream represented man's sensitivity in the sleeping state to shadows, ghosts, elements and substances floating in the air, perhaps even derived from the consciousness of other persons. He held that space was filled with bodies, many of them fragmentary and gradually disintegrating, that in sleep man had some participation in this chaotic sphere which was a sort of psychic graveyard. Aristotle, always a more conservative man, in fact he came to be regarded as the very embodiment of the conservative mental viewpoint, was inclined to suspect that dreams arose within the individual himself due to psychological factors in his own nature or from environmental pressures affecting his personality and his rest. Cicero likes to think that dreams were prophetic except those after heavy meals, which he doubted to have a divine origin. Plato 
probably can be summarized as taking the position that dreams were a form of communication between the internal life of man as his soul or psychic content and his external or physical existence as this was seated in the brain. We do not have too much additional material contributed during the medieval period where the churchmen who dominated were inclined either to follow Aristotle or Plato. But within the last three or four hundred years, many philosophers took an interest in dreams, very often as a means of sustaining other broader theories with which they were concerned. Gradually, their opinions moved toward those now generally held. But we may admit, uh, without reservation, that even today the dream is not fully understood, nor the processes by which it is produced. It is still much of a mystery. Our word dream, from medieval English, from the German, and from old Teutonic roots, seems to come from a word which means to deceive. So that at a very early time in European culture, certainly, man doubted his dreams and began to consider them as the production of some kind of fantasy, not entirely within the boundaries of reality. Thus, in the last 4,000 years, we may say that man has gradually drifted from the belief that a dream was a factual, actual experience occurring in another region or in another dimension of space, drifting through modifications of this concept to the final conclusion that the dream was intimately associated with the internal life of the individual. This is a broad statement and is subject to some modifications, but for our purpose it will indicate the general direction of thinking. The next problem that arises is the content of dreams, and this perhaps is the closest to our immediate interest. From the beginning of our observation of dream phenomena, we observe that it is composed very largely of symbols, and gradually it has come to be assumed that a study of symbolism is one of the most simple and direct ways of approaching the interpretation of dreams. Symbolism itself has been so long a part of man's cultural heritage that it may be regarded as one of his oldest and deepest traditions. Symbolism has been associated with life since man began to speculate upon his own origin or the origin of other things. Symbolism also has developed among most peoples into a highly organized legendary or lore and also into a strong moral ethical conviction uh, so that symbolism has come to be regarded as a legitimate means of interpretation by which we seek to discover substances or realities 
under the surfaces of appearances. Some of the medieval thinkers took the attitude that all appearances, all things visible, are symbols of things invisible and not in their own natures available to us. Therefore, that we must examine the whole universe in terms of symbolism if we ever hope to understand the operations of universal law. This law in itself, formless, manifests its will or its way through an infinite diversity of forms, and that these forms are meaningful, purposeful, have reasons for their existences, and are in some way extensions of principles which are also valid. These conclusions man has broadly accepted, and with this acceptance he comes into a useful instrument for the interpretation of his own thinking. Now the symbol descends to the average person through tradition. Whether we realize it or not, we are not only constantly confronted with symbolism in our daily living, but it has come into our consciousness through our association, through our reading, through our religion, through our arts and sciences, and through practically every specialized agency of cultivation. Those in various walks of life have developed intense symbolisms around familiar things, as the agriculturist or the mechanic or the metal worker. Uh, to the physician, the world is a series of symbols originating in the great processes of biology and physics. Disease manifests itself through symptoms, and symptom is another name for symbol. It is a kind of symbol, a symbol manifesting itself through a process or through a moving circumstance in the structure of the individual. And in recent issues of our journal, we have been publishing a series of articles on the symbolism of birds, animals, and other creatures which are around us in nature. Now, these articles will be very useful in the study of dreams because we instinctively now associate even these common and generally accepted creatures as having meanings other than obvious meanings. We gain considerable help in this in rhetoric. And even the dictionary is a very valuable aid because nearly all words have two meanings. One a strict meaning and the other a meaning by extension. The strict meaning uh, may not be so useful, but the meaning by extension is itself little less than a dream interpretation. Wherever words move into symbolic usage, they have come to be so accepted in our own consciousness. We think, for example, of the word stream, and by perhaps its most common and familiar meaning, we visualize a mountain stream 
a rivulet of water coming down from the hills. But in the dictionary, we will find that this word has already received its extensions. We may now speak of a stream of thought, or a stream of events, or a stream of circumstances. Thus our word has come to convey a flowing of ideas, or a flowing of values, rather than of simply a flowing of water. We also think of the word storm, and our strict meaning would involve natural phenomena. But we also think of storm now as a synonym of war, of the struggle of life, of a catastrophe in personal affairs. We think of a storm now as a stormy meeting of the board of directors. We have already extended the meaning into symbolism. We have already bound the basic symbol with a series of related patterns and ideas. And this relationship is a very important clue to the interpretation of dream symbols. Because these relationships arise through our own experiences or through our own mental ability uh, to relate similar things or things which may receive a similar definition, though of nature and substance they are different. In this same thinking, then, the dream alphabet that we are seeking and which, in spite of man's best endeavors, has never yet been found. This alphabet almost certainly derives itself from folklore, derives itself from the unusual but natural interpretations that we give to things. Consider the infinite number of such extensions to be found in the Shakespearean plays where we have a line like this. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. Here we have winter and summer brought into an entirely new relationship of meaning. Here we have winter as a symbol of discontent, summer of contentment, or of the flourishing of things a quite right and proper extension, but one probably constantly going on in our own consciousness, where we are forever uh, creating these delightful parallels or analogies between ideas and using them in various ways according to the particular interests or attachments that we may possess. Another and rather parallel situation arises in what we call Argo, a kind of dialectical situation. We think now of the many trades and professions that have developed languages that are almost completely unintelligible to the uninitiated. 
The words used are good English words, but they are given different meanings. Meanings which mean that a person with a special interest has found those meanings in words which to others do not have any such connotation. Thus we find in the development of mechanics and crafts and trades that old words come to have new significance, and the old meanings fade away from non-utility. Thus a constant psychological change in term and word is noted throughout our history. Now what does a word do to us? A word can do one of several things. Uh, we may start with the uh, most the, uh, pronounced negative. A word can do nothing. That is one of its functions. If it does not mean something to us, it remains not only uninteresting, but perhaps unintelligible. Or a word which we receive may cause a word exchange in our own consciousness. Many people who think they are thinking are merely exchanging words with each other. The word of one person suggests a word to the other person, and this suggestion becomes a chain of related words. Everyone has a wonderful time. Everyone feels that the other persons are very congenial, but in the end, no one knows anything more than they did before. This is where words are substituted for ideas. And by this substitution, merely perpetuate themselves, but are not carriers for any import or meaning. Another thing that a word can do, and probably should do, is to cause a meaning to rise in our consciousness. We grasp at the word, and the word becomes the symbol of an idea. We therefore release from our own natures, by association, our own knowledge or meaning of that word. And it is because we have the power to remember meanings of words that we are able to converse with each other. For each word that we hear, calls forth its meaning from ourselves. Now, very often, our meaning is not the same as the person who used the word. This leads to what we commonly call misunderstanding, which is simply the inability of the person hearing uh, to call forth from himself a definition of what he hears that is similar or identical to the meaning of the person who spoke. But we do know that words become agents to call forth out of ourselves some kind of an animate or symbolic significance. And where they achieve this purpose, we do maintain a fair level of communication. These words, then, are not in themselves so important. They are important merely because they cause us to recollect ideas. 
And to have these ideas brought from some dark, mysterious file of the memory and injected into an immediate situation, we call this stimulation of ideas. Also, we may take several related ideas. And when a person combines in words these ideas in new patterns, we have invention. We have ingenuity or originality. And we prefer these original patterns to rather worn-out cliches with which we are over-familiar and which, therefore, do not uh, bring forth from ourselves the satisfaction of immediate new comprehension. This process has its definite relationship to dream existence because we dream for the reason that we have this availability of ideas and to bring them into objectivity requires some kind of an agency, a moving or pressureful circumstance, no longer the word of someone else but perhaps another kind of stimulation. And this we will discuss in a moment. In the meantime, however, we have one or two other small background points which I think are worth making. Dreaming in man is rather well associated with age patterns. We know that the young, the child, does dream. We know also that the dreams of children are rather easier to interpret because they arise from a comparatively small area of stimulation. There are only certain things meaningful to the child, comprehensible to the child, and it only has an elementary group of symbols with which to react stimulation. In the case of the aged, and due to the delicacy of the situation, we will now say, by the aged, we mean anyone over a hundred years old. Uh, but to the older group, the centenarians and so on, dreams also lose most of their vitality in the majority of instances. Dreams among the aged are not as numerous, nor as intense, nor as well remembered. Therefore, we may assume that certain psychological processes associated with age have a tendency to diminish dream intensity. The majority of important dreaming takes place during the period between adolescence and the invasion of age. Therefore, we generally group this into the so-called mature group. Persons of mature years. But there is a grave question as to whether maturity in sense of time has very much to do with it. More likely, it is maturity in sense of activity. The adult person is living a more strenuous and immediate life, particularly in a competitive society. 
He is under more psychic stress and tension. He is more active and more subject to alternations of success and failure, of hope and despair. He is more afflicted by worry and fear. And in uh, the modern world in which we live, he is considerably agitated by world conditions beyond his power uh, to influence or modify. That this particular group, then, represents the principal dreaming group may well imply that the dream arises as the personality becomes more complex and more laden with the productions of its own actions and reactions. We can carry this thought a little further into the life of domestic animals. We know that animals dream, and it has been observed that this dreaming becomes more noticeable as the animal ascends the scale of intelligence. We also know that dreams are more uh, frequent in animals with active lives than those with sedentary lives. The family lap dog has not been a consistent dreamer, and his dreams, if he has any, appear to be comparatively moderate. Occasionally he will flick a leg in his sleep or appear to be munching a particularly fine bone. But otherwise, we do not see too much dream symbolism. The hunting dog, however, will nearly always show strong marks of dream excitement after a hunt. The dogs which are engaged as, for instance, police dogs in various services for man or seeing eye dogs that have to fight with traffic to protect their masters, and develop apparently a very keen sense of canine responsibility. These kind of dogs dream more frequently. Thus responsibility, or the sense of sharing, or of urgency, or of hazard, as experienced consciously, these seem to affect the unconscious state of the animal. Another point that perhaps might be made in passing is the a relation of dreams to those who are in one way or another curiously afflicted. It is not as yet demonstrated that persons born blind have visual dreams. The tendency is definitely to suggest that they do not. That where they do have dream experiences, these dreams take other forms making use of symbolism in areas where sensory perceptions are still available. This is not true, however, if the individual becomes blind, after once having become aware of the world around him. It is also true that persons who are born deaf are not known to have dreams involving speaking of words or other phenomena with which they are not familiar. It is reported that after Helen Keller had been taught to speak, artificially of course, but still to speak, that uh, speech began to occur in her dreams. Prior to this time, prior to her own experience of speech, 
they, uh, this did not occur in her dreams. Uh, points of this kind continually point up or indicate some valid relationship between phenomena as experienced by the senses and the mysteries of sleep phenomena as we record them in dreams. The next point, perhaps, that we should try to clarify is the level of man's reaction to dream pressures. Dream pressures are now generally regarded as of two kinds. Those which arise in the environment around man by means of which his rest is in some way partly disturbed and certain association mechanisms begin to function within his own otherwise sleeping consciousness. And dreams which are essentially of internal origin, arising distinctly within the individual, and therefore not in any way validly related to immediate circumstances around him. But undoubtedly many of these dreams are ultimately related to circumstances around him. Dreams which arise almost entirely from external circumstances are such as would naturally accompany the disturbance of rest. The uh, tendency today is to include such dreams as may arise from digestive difficulties in this grouping, uh, perhaps because the major enemy or the main cause of the dream did come from outside, perhaps in the form of mince pie or broiled lobster late at night. In any event, however, these dreams which have a physical or mechanical origin seemingly are regarded as essentially environment-produced dreams. Those, however, which arise with no direct relationship to any immediate circumstance may more likely be attributed uh, to the individual's internal life. And those arising from the internal life may also be divided into at least two classifications. And here we get into rather confusing ground because there are innumerable groups of classifications suggested. But for our present purposes, I think two will cover our need. Uh, the first of these groups would arise from the individual taking his daily activities into rest with him. Therefore, the dream in most cases can be directly traced, if not to the circumstances of the preceding day, at least to a series of pressing circumstances which have occurred recently, or which represent the natural, probable human reaction to fear or worry or tension or stress or anxiety of some kind. The second type of internal dream would appear to be considerably detached from these considerations and may be regarded as indication of the pressures of basic temperament. What the individual is begins to press itself upon his awareness. 
Therefore, the two internal groups can be said to be composed of what the individual is and the result of what the individual does. And these are now held to explain most dream phenomena. Uh, I think it is wise, however, to consider the possibility of a minor reclassification. I think we may include uh, as environmental dreams all dream phenomena which arises from environment, whether immediate or remote whether it be something brought forward from childhood or something which has occurred within the last few hours before sleep. All of these generally belong to one classification, broken up into time groupings. The second class, or internal dream, would seem to be that type which has no essential relationship to any immediate event or even a known remote event, but seems to be the exercise of the temperament or essential nature or individuality of the person, who is in this case explaining or interpreting himself, or bringing himself to bear upon the circumstances which affect him. So we have the dream arising from the circumstance and the dream arising from the individual seeking to meet or interpret circumstance from his own resources. And the dreams in these classifications can, of course, be added, be added to in several ways. We still have a whole group of dreams of a prophetic or mystical nature which are not fully understood. The materialistic psychologist wishes to classify them with the general body of dreams, assuming that they are only a specialized type of reaction to the pressures of circumstances. The mystic, however, is inclined to feel that the mystical dream or the mystical experience in itself is valid, that it represents a direct contact with some superior level of intelligence or consciousness, but that this contact takes upon itself the familiar dream symbols in the process of moving into objective awareness. Therefore, the symbolism may not be essentially different, but the level and quality of the meaning behind the symbol that can be, in many ways, modified or changed. Research in this field, as might be expected, is not abundant. But there is an increasing interest in it and more tendency to become concerned about it. Also in the general heading of environmental dreams, a new factor has been imposed in recent years in the study of atomism and in the development of electronics and related sciences. The possibility now of universal pressure upon the individual or universal chemical processes, electrical or magnetic, may affect the individual and cause a kind of dreaming which is not related either to the ordinary environment or to the individual's own psychic content. 
This may open a comparatively large field of research and uh, is beginning to take considerable significance in our thinking. Another phase of our dream problem, which perhaps will have to be ultimately explored, is the relationship between the dream, per se, and what we call daydreaming. Whether we know it or not, we are constantly playing with symbols, whether we are asleep or awake. And when we misunderstand our neighbor and turn bitterly upon him and blame him for something which was not his meaning, we are actually involved in the same process as dream interpretation. We are actually dreaming awake because we are calling forth these symbolic shadows and attempting to use them in the grasping of ideas. Daydreaming, of course, has as its fundamental uh, principle a kind of escape mechanism. The daydreamer is a person trying to live in a private world, not getting along too well in the public regions in which he abides. He decides that it would be more pleasant, more comfortable, and in his own thinking, better for him to invent a world. And he invents it as diligently as the story of Gulliver's travels uh, represents an invention. He invents a world in which he is always right. Now that is a delicious state of affairs. The only difficulty with it is it remains an invention, a delusion, and a snare. Because it assumes something that cannot be assumed, namely that he is always right. Also, in a way, his rightness is associated with certain weaknesses of his temperament. Whatever may be the principal handicaps of his life are always neutralized in the daydream. He finds himself, therefore, always an object of admiration. He is always a perfectly splendid being. He is not only always right, but he is always magnificent. He is also privileged to exercise authorities and freedoms which are not possible in his daily life. So in daydreaming, he develops all kinds of utopias uh, based upon almost any subject from retiring into a monastery in the Himalayas to becoming a beachcomber in Tahiti. Whatever seems to him uh, to bring him freedom from the pressures which affect him and for which he is not able to make adequate compensatory adjustment. Whatever gives him then this sense of total sufficiency is in some way shadowed in his daydream. His daydream can therefore be analyzed. Uh, to, the, to the end of determining uh, the inadequacies or imperfections of his own psychic processes. And uh, in his daydream, he consciously builds. 
In his ordinary dream, he unconsciously builds. But in both cases, he is working with the same basic materials. And that which he builds will also tell a story of himself. We know the architect by his house. We know the individual's nature by what he seeks to achieve and what he seeks to escape. These may be clearly indicated in his day dreaming or in his sleeping. Also, by nature and choice, man surrounds himself with symbols. He surrounds himself with various emblems or devices, colors, sounds, forms, substances, which in their own ways tell what he is. They may also reveal that which he is not, and they may definitely reveal the areas of tension or stress which are most dangerous for him. If, therefore, we are inclined to read man's sleep symbolism, we should also read with equal interest his daylight waking preferences, those things which most interest him, those things which bring him the greatest comfort, the type of picture he finds congenial, the type of music he listens to, the arrangement and color harmonies or discords of the furnishings of his home, the selection of a model of an automobile, the programs he watches on television or radio, or he listens to on radio. These things are all symbols of attitudes and processes taking place within his own consciousness. By the law of selectivity in himself, he is constantly seeking to compensate for his deficiencies or to obscure them or to defend himself against them. Also in the problem of dreams and dream symbolism, we know that dreams become increasingly painful or difficult to bear as man slips away from the state of a norm, his own norm, not other people's and falls into a psychosis of any kind. One of the danger symptoms which each person should watch carefully in his own character is the condition in which dreams become too prominent in his waking life. A person, for instance, who gets up in the morning with his day overshadowed by a bad dream, and may require several days to recover from that dream, or may desperately attempt to accept something which he has dreamed about as a fact, and allow this to influence his conduct while awake. Such a person is not in very good shape, and something should be done on his own part at least, to gradually correct this condition. Because if he allows it to drift too far, he may find that the pressures of his subconscious take over in his conscious affairs, and this could be extremely difficult and dangerous for him. Therefore, if someone has a dream in which a neighbor 
is unfriendly and doesn't speak to the neighbor for a week afterwards. This is not good. This is truly allowing ghosts to take over. And uh, unless the dream is supported by adequate evidence, then uh, it is not well to allow it to be too influential. I've known cases where a person, having thus had a dream of someone else, and becoming very edgy in the presence of that other person, very unfriendly, and very obviously displeased, as of course caused the other person to react in like manner, and apparently proved the truth of the dream, which, however, began merely as a sleep symbolism, which may have had an entirely different meaning from that which is obvious. This brings us then now ahead into the problem of our dream alphabet. And one of the simplest points that we must make at the beginning of this is to remind the individual that the majority of dreams are not to be interpreted literally. Uh, of course, occasionally one will be found, particularly a prodromic dream or one relating to health, in which the individual has a clear premonition of physical difficulty. This type of dream may require or invite a medical checkup. But for the most part, dreams are not to be regarded as literal. This is a sad mistake that most people make and accounts for the fact that probably in the last 30 or 40 years, I have had several hundred letters from people who had had a dream that a continent was going to sink or a city be destroyed and hastened to inform me that they had had this dream. They were then, of course, I hope, pleasantly disappointed when the city did not disappear or the continent did not sink. They weren't quite able to understand how they could have so clearly seen Detroit go up in smoke and nothing happened. This was before the age of smog, so we can't blame it on that. But these people tried to assume that particularly a menacing dream or a dream of disaster has to be literal. Their thinking perhaps is based upon the fact that they have read of cases where persons have had prophetic dreams that were fulfilled and were thus over-influenced in their own thinking. But the majority of disaster dreams are never fulfilled for the simple reason that they were not intended to be regarded as literal stories of a disaster. The disaster described in the dream was of a different type, but the person was unable to make the symbolic adjustment. So it is natural for us to recommend that all dreams be considered symbolical unless other testimonies of an extraordinary nature are present. The symbolic dream always has to be solved by an answer to the question, what does this dream mean to me? This is not an easy question to answer, but essentially it is easier for the person who is dreaming to answer it than anyone else. 
because a dream is always a production arising from factors which cannot be generally known and which cannot be completely classified. Certain classifications are possible, and we will make some of them, but all dreams have a certain direct individuality. And similar dreams uh, by different persons may have different meanings. That uh, the meaning should be and could be most available to the person who has the dream is only reasonable. Therefore, our best chance of having an adequate interpretation is that the dreamer himself will have at his command a fair area of dream symbol factors in order that he may interpret his own uh, experience or at least bring certain reasonable values to bear upon it. Now the basic meanings of dream symbols are surprisingly simple and uh, although they can be presented in an extremely learned way we will probably come as close to them in Grimm's fairy tales and Aesop's fables as anywhere else. From the beginning of man's experience, he has formalized certain archetypal concepts in his own consciousness. He has related and interrelated the common factors of daily living. It is now quite possible that some of this information descends to man as part of his common heredity, that it is essentially in his own folk nature. It is part of a heritage that has descended within him as well as around him. The most obvious and uh, simple evident form of this descent is, of course, around him. And in the circumstance that from early childhood, he is exposed to traditional symbolical meanings. He receives them in early stories that are told to him. He receives them in the first grades of school. He receives more of them in Sunday school. And he continues to have them imparted to him throughout life in one way or another. There is, however, uh, a certain point we must clarify. Homogeneous culture groups are observed to have their dreams more in common than heterogeneous groups. Thus, a people whose national, religious, and racial existences are actually one existence will have a much more intense common language of dream symbols. These persons have risen in environments in which meanings were simple and clear and constant, and where all their neighbors and their relatives and their ancestors and their friends have had the same general social experiences and have therefore developed a larger common denominator of symbolism. This does not mean that there will be no deviations in this group, but it does mean that there will be more conformity than in a heterogeneous civilization. Thus, dreams have a traditional 
factor or element in them. And in our Western life, we have a very unsound or, or insecure traditional background. Our traditions have been derived from many areas, have been seriously broken up, have been mingled and intermingled without very much continuity or reason. Until today, they constitute more or less of a hodgepodge. We have no clear traditional ethics or traditional morality. We have no clear background in our myths and legends and folklore. We are not like the Greeks who had their religion and their philosophy uh, very closely interrelated. We are not like the Chinese who closed their doors to foreign nations and remained aloof for ages. These people represent a much more homogeneous uh, cultural pattern, deriving all of their alphabetical forms from one common culture. Ours are derived from innumerable uh, conflicting cultures. This, in a sense, enriches the fabric, but it also compounds the difficulty in bringing the essential symbolism uh, within our conscious control. On the other hand, all peoples, regardless of their areas, have had certain symbols in common. These symbols include particular natural forces, for in all parts of the world, nature is reasonably consistent. It is true that in some areas we have a temperate climate and others a torrid. These will modify. But all over the world, if a man falls in the water and cannot swim, he will drown. All over the world, an individual who does not eat will be hungry. And all over the world, an individual who is tired goes to sleep. Thus there are these large common patterns uh, to which we may turn for certain generalities which must then be carefully special. If we use the familiar stories and legends that we know, we shall gradually come into possession of a series of related concepts by means of which we can come into control of a great number of dream symbols. It is not necessary to list all of them because you can sit down yourselves with a piece of paper, put down a series of basic words, and then explore your own understanding of these words. You can take any kind of a symbol and you can muse upon that symbol a little while in terms of extension. You may not arrive at what might be regarded as the classic meaning. In probability, you will not, for the reason that the classic meaning would be an absolute norm, and the average person cannot be absolutely normal in his reaction to anything. You will, however, gain not only a general concept, but also perhaps a particularly colored one suitable to your own needs and telling you what this symbol particularly means to you. 
First, you can take almost anything you can dream about, and you can put down the basic thought, and you can begin to improvise upon this theme. It is almost the same as certain basic word tests in which you search for word association. But in this case, instead of seeking for similar words, you seek for related meaning. Well, we'll take a few and try and show you what we mean by this. Let's take a very old and common symbol, a rabbit. Now, if for some unknown reason, or at least unexplained reason, you should in your sleep have the adventure described in Alice in Wonderland, in which this young lady, having gone to sleep, was confronted by a very prepossessing rabbit that not only looked well and dressed well, but also spoke with a distinct English accent. This rabbit became a kind of conductor and led her down into the earth where all her adventures took place. Now, this rabbit symbol, what does a rabbit suggest to your mind? It suggests many different things. One of the things, for instance, that it might very well suggest to you is its rapidity, its power to jump. It may also suggest to you other habits. When a rabbit is cornered, unable to escape, and does not know what to do, it remains absolutely still trying through complete suspension of all activity uh, to conceal its identity or its location. And, of course, we associate rabbits very largely with intense productivity. Uh, rabbits multiply with amazing speed, being very successful in this form of mathematics. Uh, we also think of the rabbit as a timid creature, we think of it as perhaps a childhood pet that we have had. Rabbit suggests many overtones. And in a context of symbolism, the more we think about these overtones, the more likely we are to draw out of ourselves the reason why we had a dream involving a rabbit. The pressure in the dream would indicate that in some way this symbolism is significant to us. And by quietly exploring through consciousness...